along with the development program now in Somalia. And uh, even um, back uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, uh, while I was deputy and then head of the Africa Bureau, we were already doing you know, quite a bit of development programming in a country we had no access to uh, in terms of USAID staff. Uh, uh, very rarely could anybody get into the country uh, at all uh, to assess or evaluate or monitor uh, programs and uh, conditions. Um, and we were putting uh, resources on the ground. Uh, I think we were doing it appropriately uh, for the magnitude of the humanitarian crises that uh, uh, continued to, to rock Somalia um, uh, every couple of years in terms of food insecurity and uh, drought and uh, conditions that you know, we actually had to tools that could respond and mitigate uh, those you know, consequences for people there. Um, but at the same time, we also had intelligence and national security objectives uh, in Somalia. And uh, at this point, uh, even before al-Shabaab uh, came into being, you know, we were concerned about high-value targets uh, who were you know, making their base of operations there, you know, specifically uh, individuals known to have been connected to the bombing of U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. Yeah, and so people that we were very concerned about and who had already done the United States harm. And uh, it's no secret that uh, we were already doing targeted attacks and, and strikes uh, on uh, high-value targets when opportunities presented. You know, the, the unfortunate reality is that when al-Shabaab came along and you know, all of the conditions on the ground uh, were very much in flux and, and being contested you know, by you know, different armed movements, um, our NGO partners uh, and humanitarian workers who were there trying to deliver humanitarian aid uh, to people in Somalia became uh, quite suspect in terms of who was providing the information for the U.S. government to know where individuals were uh, to be able to, to come and uh, you know, use our sophisticated uh, weapons and uh, our special forces to, to mount these attacks on, on these targets. And in fact, a number of NGO workers were killed, uh, mm. and uh, al-Shabaab was very clear and specific that uh, you know, they felt that uh, uh, NGOs, and not just Americans, but any Westerners, were providing this information. And, and we had a very challenging, I think, you know, situation in terms of our objectives uh, as U.S. government to provide humanitarian response <coughs> and to care about the fact that uh, several million people were at significant risk uh, of famine you know, at the same time as our you know, security objectives in dealing with uh, both terrorist targets and uh, this growing you know, insurgency and uh, uh, threat coming from al-Shabaab. Uh, and, and those are difficult decisions to make you know, when you're sitting at a, at a policy table, um, either in Washington here or uh, out, uh, in this case, in Nairobi, where uh, relations for the United States are managed on Somalia, you know, and uh, to know uh, which, uh, which call to make in terms of uh, how do you weigh our interests and, and uh, what those trade-offs are. So I, I think there are some really difficult dilemmas with security and defense and development and humanitarian concerns. Could you, uh, one of the things that we haven't been able to find funding for here, but John Hamry is uh, somebody who is very interested in this in, in a variety of ways. He, for example, we have the former cardinal of the Catholic Church here in Washington, D.C. is on our board. He's been very interested in the role of religion in either statecraft and in development. I can remember Andrew's last speech at the National Press Club. I think it was January the 20th, 2006 was his last day, if I recall correctly. And he said, I'm a Christian first, I'm an American second, and I'm a Republican third. It was his, and he said, the development community operates 
is often a technocratic class that operates in sort of a broad sea of faith, and sometimes they sort of miss sort of those, that, that geography that's out there. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the faith dimension in development in terms of certainly I think of Africa in particular, mm -hmm. that's a, and certainly I think of Sudan, that's something that's, that's there. I think oftentimes in master's degree classes in development or conversations about foreign policy, it's sort of an absent factor that outside of the United States or Western Europe is a much more important factor than it is mm -hmm. um, sometimes in, around conference rooms like this. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and in fact, this picks up uh, uh, quite nicely on a number of themes that I've been spending uh, my time focused on uh, in my reflection moments now at uh, these think tanks and uh, uh, research centers, et cetera, and, and trying to really understand uh, this challenge of fragile states and uh, what we can do as external actors, uh, as very influential external actors mm -hmm. in the United States of America uh, you know, in a formal sense, but but even just as an interested uh, individual uh, who cares and um, uh, wants to devote uh, time and attention yeah. uh, uh, to these challenges. Um, and it's been interesting to me reading the literature lately on development, on fragile states, on uh, violence and how violence ends, uh, and even on terrorism. Uh, it all comes back to institutions. It's not poverty, it's not uh, ungoverned spaces, it's not uh, any of the, the attributes that we think of in terms of weak states, uh, the crux of the matter seems to come back in some way to how societies organize themselves uh, to relate between citizens and the state and the private sector uh, and other social institutions and how this all comes together uh, in some uh, very complex way, uh, and I'll yeah, use that word specifically for a reason, um, to, uh, to, to generate a, a system and environment that uh, provides for improved well-being uh, of the, at least the majority of uh, those citizens uh, and, and the people in, in that society. And uh, how do we foster that? How do we encourage it? How can we facilitate it? You know, who are the key agents in these change processes? Mm -hmm. How do institutions develop? Uh, if you read uh, literature like Why Nations Fail, uh, and uh, uh, even our favorite Douglas North, Douglas our, fa North. our favorite yeah. Andrew Natsios' favorite economist. My wife's second favorite economist yes. after her father and her brothers is, du is of course Douglas, Douglas North. Douglas North, who who writes about limited access orders. Um, <laughs> for uh, you have to go Google it now and, and look it up. Uh, Angus Deaton, who's written a very interesting, provocative uh, book called The Great Escape. Uh, it's a it's a long weekend coming up. Be sure to you know got some weekend lots reading. Of, uh, lots of reading ideas here. You know, I, these, uh, there's a, a whole um, discussion now going on in the development field about uh, applying complexity theory, which, uh, as I understand it, borrows from biology uh, and uh, tries to look at development as a complex adaptive system and thinking about how do all these different elements come together uh, in a way that uh, not just lifts the economic well-being of individuals, but creates this, uh, uh, this environment, this system that is somehow mutually reinforcing and uh, ultimately uh, uh, for the betterment uh, of the people uh, in that society. And so how, how do we generate that? How can we support it? How can we um, assist it? When you think about the, this, it's not just a state uh, uh, actor uh, sort of thing. If you look at how social change happens, how do institutions develop, um, conflicts end when there are institutions that can, uh, can manage the internal and external stresses in a society in a way that's nonviolent. 
right? And so these institutions come from you know, the elites who hold power, but also other actors in society who are very influential in you know, setting the rules of the game for that society, you know, so to speak. So if you look at South Sudan, you know, the church, in fact, uh, is you know, one of the institutions in society that has the most social capital you know, to offer. The state is a very new thing. They've never really had a government uh, across South Sudan before. You know, the government in Khartoum really didn't govern and administer the entire territory of southern Sudan. They had a rebel movement uh, there since 1983 that controlled a, a vast amount of the territory, but you know, it wasn't really administering it in a governance sense at all. You know, during colonial days, there wasn't a great amount of administration from the British uh, powers that were in charge of that territory. So the state is, is still a, an unknown entity, and, and government is still sort of this amorphous thing to many people in South Sudan. But the churches you know, and faith leaders who have been there through you know, all the trials and tribulations of war, who have provided you know, social you know, services, uh, what limited health care and you know, access to education you know, there's been throughout the conflict, you know, they're very much trusted you know, by you know, the majority of people in, in South Sudan. And, and trust is the key you know, building block for institutions. You have to have trust and confidence in collective action in order to come together as a society and decide we want to live under these rules and uh, we all will respect that and abide by it uh, and have some self-governing uh, capabilities there. If you don't have that, uh, then, then you have to have a very um, interventious authoritarian state that you know, dictates the rules to you and enforces that with some uh, brutality, you know, more or less. And, and so we want to we reinforce those uh, agents of change uh, in societies that are critical to development, they're critical to developing institutions that can manage conflict, you know, they're critical to you know, dealing with the, even the very negative forces of radicalization you know, that may prey upon you know, some vulnerable you know, members of society. You know, when we think about countering terrorism and countering extremism, again, who are the critical, credible voices in those societies that can speak to an individual that might be being pulled into you know, this very extremist uh, uh, activity and, and ideology? You know, oftentimes, they're the religious leaders, particularly in Africa, very important, you know, Christian and Muslim, you know, both in terms of reaching out to members of their society. Yeah, so I, I think we have to get in development, we have to get beyond our, our you know, sort of you know, comfort zone. Our comfort zone a bit in terms of dealing just with governments and uh, state and, and, and even local officials. We have to think about uh, who really are the, the trusted, where, where does trust reside in the society? And you know, we, we want to work with, uh, with those uh, actors and institutions. Uh, it might be you know, faith-based organizations, it might be um, uh, local uh, youth uh, movements, it might be traditional leaders. Uh, I think we have to, to get beyond um, sort of our, our normal uh, thinking in many respects. And copy-paste our Western... And, and religion is, is a very important uh, uh, um, uh, element uh, in, in a vast majority of the world and, and plays a very different role, in fact, than it does here in the United States. It's, it's a, a much more public role than, than what we're used to in our world. Okay, let's open it up for, for some q and I'll, I'll take a bunch of comments and questions if people will raise their hand. Um, if not, I can keep asking Kate questions all day. Yes? Um, good morning. I'm Julie Mankus. I work at the program office in South 
Suddenly we were building roads again, yes. <laughs> Now I have a nice narrative. Right. Yes. It's a, it's a, in the moment, you're probably like, do I put you know, the, the authority on my resume or not? Yeah. Let, let me see if I can get one or two others, just okay. only because I want to bunch this together. Anyone, other questions? Are, yes, please. Let's take one more. Yes, please. So two career kind of questions and one sort of grand strategy question. So okay, yeah. Uh, so yes, in my narrative now I can tell a nice narrative about how all these experiences uh, uh, come together, at least, or have uh, contributed to you know, um, to the experiences that I've I've been fortunate to have. Yeah, you know, but I, I I have to say I don't remember being terribly. Um, uh, uh, torn about taking the opportunities that were in front of me. Would I have sat down and designed it that way? Never in a thousand years would I have thought, oh, let me go uh, look for an opportunity in state government. And in of course, Boston. Well, in Boston of all places, which I had lived in yeah. uh, previously. My, my father was in the Air Force, and we had spent a couple of years there while I was in middle school. But um, Boston politics is not something I think that you enter into um, uh, sort of no. uh, uh, no. willingly, uh, no. necessarily, but uh, but excellent experience in political stakeholder management, as it turns <laughs> out, to use my Harvard Kennedy School uh, <laughs> training um, briefly. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, as I've reflected back, um, what seemed interesting to me was to collect experiences that were um, uh, offered to me uh, and uh, were ones that I um, knew were um, 
were rare in the sense that they be, they came through this relationship with with Andrew specifically and and with a boss that uh, was clearly um, sought after and and being given immense responsibilities in a variety of different ways, uh, and it seemed uh, useful to me to. Um, to, to, to tag along, uh, to learn what I could from him and, and through those moments, uh, not about whatever it was we were trying to manage uh, exclusively, but, but just the, the broader principles of being a leader of an organization and, um, and then getting the chance to see that in the nonprofit sector, in the state government level, and then you know, here at the national level uh, and working in the international field. and. Um, and my, my advice is, in thinking about your um, uh, career paths as you're uh, launching forward, is, is not to be too narrow uh, in uh, sort of uh, following, uh, oh, I must go get my field experience, and, and then I must do this. And you know, everybody will tell you, yes, you need field experience. You should have a master's degree. Pick a, a sectoral uh, area, perhaps, uh, to specialize in, to uh, be relevant to program management and, and design and, and strategy, because that's what we do as external development actors. We uh, tend to think about it in terms of what assistance can we provide uh, and therefore what programs uh, can we uh, help manage and, and run. Um, but sometimes collecting the experience that is um, sort of out of the box uh, ends up being uh, more fruitful down the long run and, and has an application uh, in terms of how, do, how does change come about, how do institutions uh, develop, uh, uh, what is it like to run a bureaucracy. Uh, we get very frustrated with you know, ministers and officials in, in African countries, other parts of the developing world. Yeah, for not being able to to run their ministries better, to deliver the services that you know we're providing the technical assistance, we're even paying for them sometimes, uh, and it still doesn't work. And uh, if we looked inside our own bureaucracies and uh, thought about that a little bit better in our own political system, right? Even thinking about you know, the legislative and executive branches and how our systems of accountability work and don't work, uh, and. Um, uh, shut down, you know, which we all take as a sign of dysfunction, but in fact, that's, that's the, our system is designed to, to have that, um, to have those sort of safety valves in terms of even when it comes to such loggerheads. Uh, that's how conflict gets resolved uh, some way, somehow, right? Uh, and uh, there is very much this push and pull uh, between uh, systems and, and balances, uh, you know, our, our government uh, branches. You know, that may or may not be the best uh, model for other countries in the world, but you know, it's the principle behind it that seems to have some enduring qualities that are worth sharing uh, and uh, bringing to bear uh, in, in other experiences. So you know, I would say to just keep an open mind about uh, opportunities uh, that come up uh, and um, when even when they seem to be way outside the lane, you know, if it's an opportunity to work with somebody that you really admire and respect, uh, which for me is how my path uh, uh, evolved and, um, and to glean as much as you can you know, from that individual and, and that experience, uh, take it. You know, I think it's almost as important who you're working for and yes. with. Uh, as what you're doing and, you know, what title uh, you have uh, attached uh, to your, uh, your position and, and your resume. I mean, I can think of when you had the job, the various jobs that I knew you in at first, everybody knew that it was, they had to go through you on a whole series of significant substantive policy issues and you had, regardless of your title, you had a, an outsized role on policy making 
in, in, in both in Massachusetts and in your first three years at Aid. Um, so it's sometimes it's not about the title; it's about what you're saying. It's like it's it's who you're working for and and what you know what the opportunity is. Maybe beyond sort of what the title says at first, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, that absolutely? I mean, I started as an intern at World Vision, and then I was the, the office manager for a summer, and then I was a a part-time administrative assistant, and then I was a policy analyst. And then I was a senior policy analyst, and then I was uh, Andrew's uh, chief of staff, which is a rather grand title for an organization like World Vision. But you know, I, and then uh, he left, and I was the associate director of uh, public policy and government relations. And so I, I would just, uh, I guess, to your point, question about how to enter and, and switch. Yeah, um, sometimes you have to be willing to, to start, to, uh, you know, find an interesting organization, an interesting person that you want to be around, even if it's not the exact right position that is your dream job or role. Um, get what you, you know, if you have an opportunity, take it, to, you know, pull the experiences and, and the lessons that you can from that, uh, and then continue to look for, you know, uh, other ones that you can continue to collect. I sort of think of it as a, a swirling around a, a theme or a, a, a passion, a set of passions and interests for me. Yeah, and uh, um, I haven't had the legislative experience uh, yet. I think that would be very interesting to do. You know, I think uh, you know a national security interagency I'm going to be your campaign manager. <laughs> I'm never campaigning for anything. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but you know, if you think about uh, looking at uh, just the different vantage points and perspectives of whether it's national security or international development or um, democracy building or, or whatever it is, to continue to collect those. Yeah, in different ways is, is I think, uh, very useful. And uh, you know, I believe that someday they do all come together and, and uh, uh, make you a much more interesting and valuable uh, person uh, as a professional to contribute uh, in the field. Yeah, and, and I really, whatever sector interest grabs your heart, I, I would uh, encourage you to think about the institutional processes that are behind uh, how uh, how does healthcare get delivered? How does education happen? How does agriculture or you know, democracy uh, come about? How do we enable grassroots uh, uh, to be able to um, have their role in accountability in civil society, et cetera? Uh, those sorts of things. In terms of the nexus of security and development, I could I could talk here all day about this, so I'm going to try and be very um, uh, brief. Um, I, I I personally think that we've um, we've we've lost some grounding in terms of empirical realities of security and of development, and we get lost in slogans on you can't have security without development or development without security and whole of government, we all have to work together in order to achieve our, our goals and objectives. You know, in fact, you can have security without development. There are very poor countries that are stable and not in conflict. You cannot have development without security. There's nowhere on the planet where you know, if there's war and violence going on that an economy can grow and flourish and that there can be the economic resources necessary for this broader process of development that I was talking about earlier. So we should stop we should stop talking that way and we should think through more clearly, okay, so if we need security for development to happen, what is development's role where there is insecurity? Uh, and so this is where we've been very challenged uh, in uh, the last decade uh, in terms of the United States' specific role in Iraq and Afghanistan 
as an invader, as an occupier, as a military protagonist, uh, with all uh, very, um, you know, let's not debate the goals yeah. for why that is, but, you know, in, in the interest of protecting and defending the United States of America, we have found ourselves um, in this very interesting um, activist uh, role in a conflict. And when we are a protagonist in a conflict, I think that does affect what role we can play as development or humanitarian actors. You know, I do believe that all aid is political. You cannot put a resource into a resource-scarce environment and not have that affect the political economy of that environment. You know, and when we, we don't uh, respect that and uh, take the time to understand the local context and the local political economy and who we're empowering and who we're disempowering by the aid that we provide, whoever is doing it and what, however pure or honorable our motives are you know, by providing it, we do a disservice, uh, and we can also often be counterproductive you know, in, in our attempts uh, to help. You know, and, and I think you know, it's important for us to, to be candid and honest about that. I think it's important to, to be candid and honest about you know, um, what aid cannot do. Yeah, we cannot stabilize a fragile state. We can't fix a fragile state. We can't put Afghanistan or Iraq back together or South Sudan together. Can we play a contributing role, a helpful role? We can, and I've seen um, up close uh, what aid can do when it's, it's done well. But it, it works best when there's a pull for the assistance, when there's a demand for it, not when we're pushing it out because that's what we have to give. We've so got we've got chocolate ice cream today. <coughs> We're giving out chocolate ice cream or strawberry ice cream, and what they really well, want is, think is about fruity, tutti frutti. If you look at USAID specifically, yeah, its budget is almost. An, I'm just going to speak yep. now of Africa because that's what I know best. Uh, the Africa budget is entirely presidential initiatives and congressional directives. Yeah, so while we talk about country ownership and we talk about responding to host country development priorities. We, that's, that's all very nice What and we've got on offer is presidential initiatives and congressional but earmarks. We've decided that what you need is global health and agriculture assistance in the form of Feed the Future and global climate change. These are all very appropriate things for challenges that developing countries face, but that may or may not be what Tanzania wants from the United so States. So if Tanzania's got an 80% or 90% global health budget and perhaps what they really need is land tenure reform, maybe that's what we should put our money into? Well, that would be a more uh, that would be uh, more responsive in terms of uh, okay. uh, developing, uh, you know, responding to what a developing country wants. I mean, I think you're going to hear coming forward uh, much more about ending extreme poverty as a goal for uh, development agencies, not just the World Bank. And we really need to stop and think: Is this what developing countries are asking us for? I think it's incredibly important to care about the poorest of the poor in these societies. But we have to think about our roles as NGO actors, as official development agencies representing uh, US, uh, don't, you know, the U.S. donor uh, uh, in terms of the uh, government response. We have to think about international financial institutions. We, there are different advantages and disadvantages that we bring to the table when trying to address a security and development problem. I think DOD is a terrible development actor and that we should not pretend anything other otherwise. Yeah, so now, now I'm on the record as saying it. Yeah, you can check out my blog post from CGD. I've been hitting on this theme for the last year or so. I, I, uh, I was very contrary during the stand-up of AFRICOM, which uh, was launched just before I was sworn in as, as administrator. So I, as assistant administrator, I had to um, spend a lot of time on, on USAID's role. Uh, in that uh, environment. I think we should work with the military for sure. 
Yeah, but uh, there's all kinds of reasons why they shouldn't be in the development business, and uh, we should you know, be upfront about that. And I think that means you know, uh, changing the dialogue that we have at the policy level on the Hill and uh, uh, here in Washington you know, around uh, security and development and what we understand about each. One more question or comment from the audience. Yes, please. It just injured if you say who you are. Conveniently for you, I've just written a paper on this, so you, you can find it on you know, the Africa Center for Strategic Studies website. It's on um, uh, building accountability uh, in, uh, in South Sudan and uh, looking at it as a fragile state. I, I, I would just uh, add another thing to your everyone's reading list to respond to this question, which is the, the 2011 World Development Report by the World Bank, which is on conflict security and development, and is a phenomenal resource in terms of uh, pulling together uh, the best that the literature has to offer, the empirical evidence from economics, from sociology, political science, across the board, on how, what we understand about violence, about fragile states, and, and how, uh, how violence can come mm -hmm. to an end uh, in these places, and how fragile states can become mm -hmm. more resilient. Uh, and it prioritizes three things, uh, citizen security, justice, which we almost never talk about in the context of development, and I think is a very important aspect as yeah. well uh, that, that needs uh, uh, more thought and, and consideration, and jobs. Uh, and that focusing uh, on restoring confidence in collective action and then uh, uh, building momentum for reforms in those three areas, uh, that seems to be uh, uh, the, the best wisdom of the world thus far in terms of countries that have successfully transitioned out of conflict and repeated cycles of, of violence. So in the name of gender balance, I'm going to give the last <laughs> word to <laughs> name and institution. On our side, interagency. Yeah, um, um, I, I, I think um, a couple of things. Uh, one, we're constrained in terms of what we offer governments. Uh, uh, oftentimes, because uh, we get uh, this flavor of money or that flavor of money, and uh, we have to 
it's a, it's a very you know, messy sausage-making process to put a country budget together you know, inside USAID, for instance. But then looking across uh, you know, you know, the agencies that deal particularly with promoting private sector uh, growth, uh, for instance, in Africa, you, know, you have USAID and MCC and OPIC and TDA and you know, so many alphabet soup uh, organizations of the U.S. government you know, that uh, yeah, pulling all those strands together in a coherent way, who's doing what uh, sorts of things uh, for, for, you know, the government of Ghana, for instance, and responding to this request or that request, or pushing, you know, we have this to offer you and not that to offer you. It's very, um, it's very complicated in, in terms of uh, both our side and, and then, uh, I think, relating on the other side. And I think because we don't have um, uh, uh, sort of the the supreme development uh, agency uh, that we uh, those of us coming yes. out of USAID would like to think uh, you know of USAID, um, but having that one development voice and and uh, the primary one that uh, can at least pull together the strands that the U.S. government has to offer, even when they do appropriately sit in other. Uh, organizations and entities uh, of the United States, you know, it, it makes it all the more confusing and challenging for our partners on the other end, uh, much less you know, partners within the United States, whether private sector or NGOs or you know, others who, who want to engage with the U.S. government together you know, in, in responding to some needs. You know, I think in general capacity building, you know, no matter how much we have on offer and, and the best technical advice and experience that 